um, yeah, so we're reading individuation um, is the easy way to say it. Um, uh, so right, we we read the first section um, talking about the the brick example, um, and um, he pointed out uh, um, the uh, sort of uh, deficit of the uh, of the hylomorphic schema. It's the fact that it uh, doesn't um, it doesn't properly account for the um, the preparation required of the of the the two aspects of the of the, the schema. So the matter and uh, form each have to be prepared in such a way that they can interact with each other, and so that the form can be imposed on the matter. It's not just a, an abstract geometrical form and an abstract uh, matter. Um, so we're going to see a little bit more about that this time and um, a different set of examples having to do with uh, electronics um, of the, the 50s, I guess, or, or uh, early 60s. Um, so there's um, if you scroll up in the chat, for those who weren't here, you can see a little bit of um, an explanation of some of the electronic concepts that will be helpful and uh, a couple of diagrams. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll just go along and try to make sense of it as, as we find these uh, electronic concepts. So I'll start reading. The technical operation of form taking can therefore serve as a paradigm if we require this operation to indicate the veritable relations that it institutes. However, these relations are not established between the raw matter and the pure form, but between the prepared matter and the materialized form. The operation of form taking doesn't just suppose raw matter and form, but also energy. The materialized form is a form that can act as a limit at the topological boundary of a system. The prepared matter is one that can transmit energetic potentials, the technical manipulation of which charges it. In order to play a role in the technical operation, the pure form must become a system of points of application of the forces of reaction while the raw matter becomes a homogeneous bearer of potential energy. Form taking is the mutual operation of the form and the matter in a system. The energetic condition is essential and it is not contributed by the form alone. The whole system is the center of potential energy precisely because form taking is an in-depth operation within the whole mass, the operation of which is a state of energetic reciprocity of the matter relative to itself. The distribution of energy is what is determinative of in form taking and the mutual conformity of the matter and the form is relative to the possibility of the existence and characteristics of this energetic system. The matter is what bears this energy and the form is what modulates the distribution of this very energy. At the moment of form taking, the matter form unity is in the energetic regime. The hylomorphic schema only retains the extremes of these two half chains elaborated by the technical operation. The schematism of the operation itself is obscured and ignored. There is a hole in hylomorphic representation that makes the true mediation disappear, i.e. the very operation that attaches the two half chains to each other by instituting an energetic system, a state that evolves and must exist, must effectively exist for an object to appear with its hyxiety. The hylomorphic schema corresponds to the knowledge of someone who re remains outside the workshop and he considers nothing but what enters in and exits it. In order to know the true hylomorphic relation, it is not even enough to enter the workshop and work with the craftsman. We would have to penetrate into the mold itself in order to follow the operation of form taking on the different scales of magnitude of physical reality. Interesting. Um, I'm looking at the uh, uh, PDF that um, I think Varun posted, um, which is like from the ebook version of, of the of the text. Do you have the physical text in front of you? 
It's mine too. I, I have the physical version. I think this must have been like, if you notice some of the footnotes, they're not even complete. I think this is like a final draft version and that there might have been final edits before. Uh, to, to be fair, the book also has lots of typos and stuff, so I don't know what, what happened. But oh, Yeah, that's too bad because um, uh, I haven't noticed any typos, I don't think, in the uh, PDF. Uh, so it looks like they did um, uh, uh, another round of edits between the uh, the printing of the the physical copy and um, the uh, publication of the the ebook, I guess, um, which is a little bit strange, um, especially like if you want to cite the book, then which version do you cite? Um, if there are if there are differences, um, like the the one you just pointed out doesn't seem to make really any difference in meaning, uh, like goes in and out is the same thing as enters and exits, I think. Um, I don't think there's any real um, significance to that difference, but it could be, um, you could find places where there, there might be a difference of meaning and then which one do you cite? That's kind of, that's kind of uh, strange. So are they both this, are, are they both this newest version or are, is one of the two the like older, because there's, Right. Well, there's a very new translation of this that just came out. Is that the one we're reading? And is it maybe the physical copy that somebody has is older? Or... No, they're both the same translation from uh, Taylor Adkins, um, which came out this past year or uh, in, in 2020. Um, um, and uh, it's just there are apparently these slight differences between the, uh, the PDF version and the uh, uh, physical version, which is uh, sort of strange. Gotcha. I wonder if it happened in that interim point where it was where the book was held back and given back to the family for a while. Maybe that maybe this is a sort of moment where somebody looked at it and did copying one last time. Yeah, it did uh, it, because there was a an original publication date, um, and then they pushed it back again, and I think it came out in October finally, um, and. Uh, so yeah, I guess somewhere in there they uh, they they uh, did more editing, um, but uh, I guess the, the physical copy was already printed at that point, or or something like that. Um, anyway, we'll we'll have to uh, if if anyone who is using the physical copy notices um, some difference that that uh, a difference that makes a difference uh, to use Bateson's term. Um, um, anything that uh, seems significant, uh, if it's just you know one little word choice difference then uh, maybe not not uh, important but if, if it seems like it, it makes a difference in the, in terms of the meaning then uh, it would be helpful to uh, to bring that up um, so coming back to the the passages that we just read um, so there's an interesting point here which I don't think he develops much in in this book or at least not as much as in um, the conclusion of the other book on the mode of existence of technical objects so in here he just says um, that the hylomorphic schema corresponds to the knowledge of someone who remains outside the workshop and considers nothing but what enters and exits it. Um, so uh, just someone standing outside the workshop um, um, in whatever social role they, they have. But in the uh, technical objects book, um, they, um, oh yes, I should start streaming. I'll do that in a second. Um, in the, the technical objects book, he, um, he actually sets sets out. Um, he he argues that the holomorphic schema corresponds to the slave owner's knowledge uh, in particular, um, 
So uh, in classical antiquity, uh, of course, uh, was a um, slave-owning societies. Oh, he, he does uh, he does bring that up here, right? Okay, yeah, we'll see that as we as we continue. Um, but um, um, the the argument is that the the slave owner um, basically orders a bunch of clay, uh, orders a bunch of uh, 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 molds for the for the bricks, um, and tells the slave to to uh, make a bunch of bricks, and then um, sort of magically, from their perspective, a bunch of bricks appear. So the from the uh, um, from the perspective of the slave owner, there's just the the form of the brick and the the clay that they bought, and uh, the one gets applied to the other, um, just sort of by itself or or without any um, any uh, effort on their part. Um, so so that's uh, the this representation in terms of uh, a pure form and a raw matter. Um, corresponds to that social role, um, which I think is a is a, a pretty interesting argument and uh, seems right to me. Um, um, and uh, the the question then is why um, why the hylomorphic schema uh, survives beyond um, the slave owning society, um, uh, which uh, you know it, it appears throughout medieval philosophy, um, and there are even uh, Aristotelians around today that will still um, hold on to this hylomorphic schema, uh, so that it's it's not um, it's not tied in a, a sort of tight manner to the slave owning uh, society, um, but uh, it's uh, it's able to survive beyond the the slave owning society itself. Um, so that would be uh, an interesting problem to try to analyze. Uh, or try to explain how it, it survives beyond that society, if that's what it's grounded in. Well, we might be getting ahead of ourselves, but I think in that final section, in section three of this bit, um, he does talk a little bit about, we've sort of been speaking as though the whole idea is this technical paradigm provides this schema that gets extended into other things, but then he kind of flips that on itself and is, and is like, well, so if that's how the technical operation works, then does that apply to life and living being? What would that like, kind of individuation looks like? But then through that whole conversation, he kind of comes back and it's like, it really, you can't really say that the technical schema, it comes first and then the living schema, you know, the, the more advanced form of individuation, it, it comes about in our minds or whatever, but that it's actually because of what we are, because we are living beings, that we are able to sort of almost in reverse uh, reduce or extend that analogy into technicity. That's kind of how I read it. I thought that was really interesting. I think he says so kind of explicitly towards the end of this section. But. Yeah, there's um, a, a sort of recurring theme um, throughout his thought um, is that um, the, the role of the vital or of uh, our status as living beings um, in thought so that um, certain intellectual operations are only possible because they're they're performed by living beings um, and, and and so we we have to um, we have to understand the uh, the the status of these intellectual operations um, in in the light of the vital uh, individuation that makes them possible um, and so this would be an instance of that um, and so it's because we are living beings that we can um, Sort of uh, apply the hylomorphic schema to to certain domains. Oh, and I forgot to stream. Let me do that. 
I think what was also interesting beyond that uh, is that he kind of talks here about how even the technical operation that we speak of is sort of an extension of, of like he's like the, the bricks hexaity is informed by its intended use as well and what its its purpose for human activities. So even that, you know, it's sort of like a, we're talking about them as technical half chains as though that itself isn't involved in living individuation. But again, again I think this stuff kind of comes a bit later. I, I think the stuff we're seeing here is just establishing some of that stuff of like um, what we need to look at is the matter energy system state rather than uh, matter and form unity in a system state rather than one or the other. All right. Um, I think we can go on to the next paragraph, um, which is a, another long one, um, if someone else would like to read. Grasped in itself, the operation of form taking can be carried out in several ways and according to modalities that are seemingly very different from one another. The veritable technicity of the operation of form taking greatly surpasses the conventional limits that separate the fields and domains of labor. Consequently, through the study of energetic regime of form taking, it becomes possible to approximate the molding of a brick with the function of an electronic relay. In an electronic tube like a triode, the matter, bearer of potential energy that is actually is the cloud of electrons emanating from the cathode in the cathode anode effector generator circuit. The form is what limits this actualization of reserve potential in the generator, i.e. the electrical field created by the difference in potential in the control grid in the cathode which is opposed to the cathode anode field created by the generator itself. This counterfield is a limit to the actualization of potential energy, just as the walls of the mold are a limit to the actualization of potential energy of the clay mold system carried by the clay in its displacement. The difference between the two cases resides in the fact that the operation of form taking is finite in terms for the clay, tends very slowly in several seconds towards a state of equilibrium, and then the brick is removed from the mold. The state of equilibrium is utilized in the unmolding when this state is attained. In the electronic tube, we utilize the support of energy, an electron cloud in a field with a very slight inertia, such that the state of equilibrium equivalence between the distribution of electrons and the gradient of electrical field is obtained in the extremely short time relative to example of the brick, several milliseconds in a large tube and several tenths of a millisecond in a very small tube. Under these conditions, the potential of control grid is utilized as a variable mold. The distribution of the support of energy in proportion to this mold is so rapid that it's carried out without an appreciable delay for the majority of application. The variable mold then serves to differentiate in actualization of the source's potential energy. We do not stop when equilibrium is attained, but continue by modifying, i.e. the tension of the grid. The actualization is almost instantaneous and therefore is never a halt for the unmolding. Since the circuit of the support of energy is equivalent to a perpetual unmolding, a modulator is a contemporaneous, continuous temporal mold. Here, the matter is almost uniquely the support of the potential energy. It nevertheless always conserves a definite inertia that prevents the modulator from being infinitely fast. In the case of the clay mold, on the contrary, what is technically utilized is the state of equilibrium that can be conserved by unmolding. A sufficient amount of the clay's viscosity is then accepted in order for the form to be conserved in the course of unmolding, even though this viscosity slows down the form taken. 
Conversely, in the modulator, the viscosity of the bearer of energy is reduced as much as possible. So we do not seek to conserve the state of equilibrium after the conditions of equilibrium have ended. It is easier to modulate the energy carried by compressed air than by pressurized water. And it is even easier to modulate the energy carried by electrons in transit than by compressed air. The mold and the modulator are the extreme cases, but, but the essential operation of form taking is accomplished in the same way for both. It consists in the establishment of an energetic regime, whether or not it persists. To mold is to modulate in a definitive way. To modulate is to mold in a continuous and continuously and perpetually variable way. Yeah, so um, I was just going to say that, uh, so in this, we have here a, a second example of, uh, um, of uh, form-taking operation, which is uh, a different one than just the, um, the brick-taking on form. So here it's a, um, a continuous form-taking um, rather than a definitive form-taking, like the other example. So the, the flow of electricity is modulated. It, it's uh, continuously modified um, by the control grid in the um, uh, um, diode or uh, electronic tube, um, and um, so so the specificity of the hylomorphic uh, schema in, in in the brick example here um, uh, is is sort of uh, extended. Um, uh, obviously, this is not uh, a type of example that um, um, uh, Aristotle or someone like that would have taken up, but um, there's um, a way of uh, applying the hylomorphic schema um, to this type of operation uh, in a in a different way. Yeah, Aristotle does not talk about diodes, unfortunately. Uh, it's uh, one of the big uh, um, gaps in his philosophy. They found like chemical batteries in in like uh, Greek ruins, right? Or like Cretan ruins that they probably used in electrolysis for jewelry making. It, it would have been feasible for Aristotle to talk about like basic electrodes. So, can I ask? Does anyone um? Because I, I feel like unless I'm wrong, this is the first time that he's starting to talk about unmolding as like another stage so before we were talking about the two half chains and the, the form taking potentials of the matter and the the limiting uh i guess pseudo work of the mold and all that stuff but then this thing where he's getting to the uh it tends towards the state of equilibrium the brick is removed from the mold and then the state of equilibrium is utilized in the unmolding when this state is attained. And then he kind of goes on to say that that isn't what happens in the diode or I guess the triode. There's never a halt for the unmolding. Maybe I just need to get my brain around it because I, I started to follow again, I think, in the following paragraphs. But it's just this, this example. I'm, um, I'm just not familiar with it. You know, The brick is a much obviously more like common sense example. Um, I think he did mention the unmolding um part of the process before um but i would have to go and and take a look for that again um but the the idea um is um is basically that in the in the example of the brick the um because of the viscosity of the of the clay it um um 
it uh, oh actually yeah so the first instance is, is page 30 okay uh, maybe not but I, I thought he had um, maybe he just didn't use the word and, and he, he talked about it um, in a in a different vocabulary um, but um, in the case of the the brick you have um, a, a definitive uh, forming form taking so um, this is a, a form taking that persists through time after the actual application of force uh, and the, the formation of this um, uh, energetic system uh, that, that that consists of the mold and the uh, and the the clay in, in the mold. Um, but um, uh, in the case of the uh, um, electrical. Uh, circuit or, or in the case of the uh, the tube um, there's there's no um, uh, there's no uh, definitive form taking in that sense so there's uh, there's just the continuous variation of uh, of the form um, and uh, it it allows for um, or, or this is this is what constitutes modulation in in the sense that Simon don't want to use that word is is that continuous variation of form uh, without um, without that moment of unmolding and I think uh, maybe a, a question here would be um, to what extent there is something like individuation in the case of the two um, because you, you you just have this uh, continuous variation of uh, of the the modulation um, um, so you don't have um, you don't have this Form taking uh, this definitive form taking, like in the case of the brick, um, and so uh, in the case of the brick, the the individuation process and the form taking process coincide. Uh, like those are the same operation, um, but in the case of the tube, it's not clear that there is an individuation process um, because the form taking process doesn't um, result in a in a um, a definitive form. It, it's just continuously varied. So, so you're saying that with the triode example, that individuation doesn't take place, or? Yeah, I don't yeah, think. I would, so. I would um, argue that it does, though. That the two um, uh, chains are required to um, to give the the. Uh, the individuation of, of the tube, the triode, it's machinic kind of individuated uh, hiacity. So the, the glass part, the mold, um, yeah, is, is required to be there um, <clears throat> along with all the stuff that's inside uh, uh, but I'm constituting the things that are inside the tube as the matter and the glass as the form, where in fact it could very well be that the glass was part of the matter as well. So that there, you know, I could be uh, a little bit off here. But it seemed to me on my first read was that the um, integratedness of the glass with all the internal matter um, that's regulating the. Uh, electrodes and uh, the heat and all the individuation processes that both have to be there in order for the hiacity of the tube to exist and that's what separate 
separated it for me or I was able to make the distinction from the brick because you had the scaffolding uh, and the mold kind of removed uh, once the individuation of uh, a particular brick was created. Yeah, I think here we have to be uh, careful to distinguish two different um, two different uh, sort of forms of individuation or, or or two different questions about individuation. So the question here is not so much uh, about the tube itself, the individuation of the tube as a a, a physical object. Um, um, it's the 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 individuation of the of the um, uh, of the uh, electrical um, current in in the tube. Um, so the the hylomorphic schema that he's describing here, in in that hylomorphic schema, we have the matter is the um, uh, electrical cloud, uh, as he puts it, and the uh, the form is um, uh, provided by the the grid, um, and and so the question there is. Um, or the question that, that I was asking was whether that that form taking operation uh, is also an operation of individuation, uh, and I think the answer to that question is no. But um, you know, maybe other people uh, disagree with that. Um, um, but uh, uh, so that that contrasts. So if the answer is no, then that contrasts with the case of the the brick. Because in the brick, it, there the form taking operation and the individuation, uh, the production of a of an individual brick, uh, those two operations coincide, and it's the same operation. Um, so that would be, um, yeah. So it, it would be a, a sort of um, uh, um, the individuation would would never um, never be completed in the case of the the. Um, electrical current in the uh, in the tube. So I guess that's my question, and I, you know, maybe we can we'll, when we move on, we'll see more. But I, I'm struggling with the idea of individuation not taking place versus not ending, because that that sort of makes more sense to me. But earlier, I thought it was really helpful when I was rereading, like just before this section, back on 29 or 28, when he's talking about plasticity, it, it kind of it clicked for me a little bit because. He's talking about how the mold can have elasticity but not plasticity, uh, it, you know, because it can move, it can be pushed around and whatnot, but it, it's not plastic in the way that the clay, it, the form-taking clay is. So it kind of crystallized for me as plasticity is that state of having potentials, or I think in his words, I have it in my notes here, the capacity to be in a state of internal resonance as soon as it is subjected to pressure in an enclosure. So if that's the case, then even if he's kind of extending this to Okay, the the elect cloud of electrons, or as Angus is saying, the cathode anode field versus cathode grid field. I can follow that far, but in I guess what what I'm trying to understand is in what way would the form of this this matter not also be you know maybe we're abusing the the, the word now, but it seems to still the, the idea of plasticity or it having those potentials in the first place is still there, right? So then I guess I'm wondering what. Maybe he answers it. What, what would it mean to not partake in individuation? That that's the part that's strange to me. Um, so I think the um, yeah the the question is um, if if there is this um, um, this 
gap or this uh, possibility of a of a difference between the um, form taking operation and the individuation operation. So if if there is this possibility for um, something in this case the uh, electrical current to to undergo a, a process of form taking um, without undergoing a process of individuation. So that's that's the the question uh, um, that I was raising. Um, and I think here, um, so you, you pointed to the, the plasticity in the last bit, but I think he's also, um, or I think the plasticity uh, coincides in this case with um, viscosity um, in the sense that um, the, the form taking in the case of the, uh, of the brick, uh, in, in the case of the clay uh, in the mold, um, it's a it's a form taking that persists through time um, after uh, it, it it takes time to to uh, for the form to be imposed on the matter and then after that that uh, those couple of seconds that it takes to to impose the form on the clay then it uh, it persists afterwards whereas here in the case of the electrical current we're we're talking about a form taking that is um, effectively instantaneous. Um, um, it, it you know it takes uh, milliseconds or, or tenths of a millisecond, um, and um, 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 the the there's there's no um, persistence of of that form um, after the the initial imposition of the form. So it, it's um, uh, the form taking is, is instantaneous, um, but uh, it, it doesn't persist after the original. Uh, if I may, I uh, I think it would be could be useful to bring some anticipatory glimpses uh, from the rest of the book to bear on the discussion. So we have in a chapter right after this one called Form and Energy. It is filled with these physical diagrams and all that. So uh, it seems that uh, understanding that chapter seems to require understanding contemporary physics, uh, at least uh, Simondo's time, uh, and there it really is not so much about a form that we can associate with a substance, but uh, it really becomes more and more attenuated, his idea of individuation, so that uh, it is no longer about asking about uh, a resultant form or a resultant individualized, individuated product, and it no longer comes down to recognizing one. And he says on page 70, individuation as an operation is not linked to the identity of a matter, but to a state modification. So I take this to, um, uh, to be a gesture in that direction of attenuation. So it is in this passage then, uh, using the cathode tube uh, as an example of individuation, I think it is more like an invitation or provocation to change uh, or expand our idea of what individuation can be. Uh, this side or, or a different side to the form and matter uh, hydromorphic schema. Yeah, that's that's helpful. Um, I hadn't I hadn't thought of that connection. Um, um, so yeah, the, the, it could be that um, it's not so much it's not so much that there isn't individuation in in this case it, it's um it's that the the form uh, or the the type of individuation 
is a is a different kind of individuation um, than in the case of the brick um, and uh, and the example would serve to to sort of break down uh, our um, initial tendency to to um, identify individuation with something like the brick example so my understanding um, a lot of this I think is coming from the book on technical objects um, is well so I take the question to be uh, do we it seems like uh, individuation is kind of attenuated or it's not really full and complete and it seems to me like that's actually pretty sort of in tune with Simondon's overall view. Because uh, I remember him saying pretty clearly that, you know, no matter what, in, you know, no matter how far individuation comes, like the potential, the field of potentiality is never really exhausted. And it even seems like individuate, you know, an individual at one level can actually be the potential for uh like a further individuation you know and so it's it seems like it's just a continuous process uh and i guess my my reading is like individuation is always a kind of derivative feature like it's you know it's not primary it's always this result and it's always kind of in process and uh um and i guess that maybe is one difference from aristotle i wonder if in the aristotelian view uh there is something like a final individual you know like uh, like the fully complete fully determined the thing that doesn't need to uh sort of go any further and i'm not sure i don't think simon don really has that end point yeah that's uh um that helps to to tie it back in with the more general thesis about um about the process of individuation and um um the 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 remaining of the pre-individual the way that the pre-individual is never exhausted in the process of individuation um yeah so that makes sense um and then as we'll see in uh, in the future chapter on vital individuation he, or and i think you mentioned this sort of in passing in the introduction as well um the difference between physical individuation and vital individuation is going to be uh, explained in terms of the temporality of uh, of the process of individuation. So that um, in the case of vital individuation, the, the individuation process persists throughout the life of the individual. Um, so uh, a living being is constantly in, in the process of individuation as opposed to um, um, as opposed to a, a physical individual, which uh, which is individuated once and then can only degrade as an individual. So the uh, the case of the the electrical current would actually be a little bit closer to the case of the living individual um, because it, it's uh, sort of constantly undergoing um, individuation. Yeah, I suspect you're right about that because the circuit analogy it's like as though we're getting closer to more and more complex ways of discussing it that will be able to be extended uh into living being but i do think that was helpful ruins because uh, otherwise i was i think i think i would have not understand what we were reading uh if the, if no individuation was taking place um so i think we can go on to the next uh two sort of moderate length uh, paragraphs uh someone else would like to read i don't mind reading 
Um, where are we? Sorry, let me pull this up. Um, We're at menu technical operations. Cool. Uh, menu technical operations utilize a form taking that has intermediate characteristics between molding and modulation. Thus, a spinneret and a rolling mill are molds with a continuous regime that create a definitive profile in successive stages called passes. Unmolding is continuous in this case, just like in a modulator. We could conceive a rolling mill that would really modulate matter and fabricate, for example, a crenellated or indented ingot. Rolling mills that produce striated sheet metal modulate matter, whereas a smooth rolling mill merely models it. Molding and modulation are the two extreme cases of which modeling is the intermediate case. We would like to show that the technological paradigm is not without value, and that to a certain extent it allows us to think the genesis of the individuated being, but only on the express condition that we retain as an essential schema the relation of matter and form through the energetic system of form taking. Matter and form must be grasped during, the form, during form taking at the moment when the unity of the becoming of an energetic system constitutes this relation on the level of the homogeneity of forces between matter and form. What is central and essential is the energetic operation, which supposes energetic potentiality and a limit of actualization. The initiative of the genesis of substance neither boils down to matter as passive nor to form as pure. What generates is the complete system, and it generates because it is a system of the actualization of potential energy that combines in an active mediation two realities of two different orders of magnitude within an intermediate order. So we have here, we have introduced here a, a third term. So we have molding as, as one extreme um, in the case where, where the form taking is um, definitive or, or, or permanent. Um, and then we have modulation in the case, the other extreme case is where um, um, the form taking is is only uh, instantaneous um, and, and there's a, a continuous variation of form and then uh, modeling is the intermediate case between those two so it would be something like um, um, a, uh, um, a a form taking that um, is varied over time but um, is, uh, is is not um, doesn't disappear uh, instantaneously, like in the case of the electrical current. Um, so I think the the uh, yeah the rolling mill example would be um, um, something like um, forming a uh, 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 um, a metal um, object of some kind um, and uh, and and. Uh, making the metal take on form in this in this way, but there's a, a variation in terms of the um, the uh, the right. So, yeah. So Angus has um, has uh, given a, a couple of examples or, or a couple of uh, clarifications in the chat there. But um, it, it, in terms of um, the um, form taking operation is not instantaneous. Um, uh, as in the case of the uh, electrical current, um, and it persists um, uh, it persists through time, like in the case of the um, molding. But it's also not. Um, but it also involves a, a variation um, uh, through the process. So there's um, um, there's a, a constant uh, variation of the the molds in order to impose the form, um, but it's it's uh, form taking that persists after that initial uh, variation. 
is the example uh, of um, of like the sword kind of craft is is that too extreme in one direction? I was just thinking of another situation where you're kind of there's a series of intermediate form takings, or is that kind of not what he's getting at? Um, I mean, I, I, again, I'm not like very well versed in metallurgy or anything like that, but my understanding is that the the sword uh, forging example would be something more like the molding, where you would pour the the uh, liquid metal into the mold, uh, and then uh, it would solidify, uh, taking on a, a form. Um, um, but yeah, if if you have to um, you know the the sort of uh, blacksmith um, operation of uh, you know using a, a a hammer to to uh, bang on the the metal to make it into whatever form you you need to to take on. Um, I think that would be maybe closer to the modeling case, um, but um, yeah, I guess the. Uh, the 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 example is yeah the point the point here is um is that the form taking operation um can either be uh, an instantaneous operation over the whole um the whole system like in the, in the case of the brick or, or not instantaneous but uh, a rapid operation over the, the course of the whole over the whole mass of matter um whereas in the case of the the rolling mill um it's it's uh you sort of feed the matter into the form gradually um, over the end. It, it, um, the form taking is, um, is proceeding through time, uh, but then it persists uh, after that form taking has, has happened. So the difference between, um, so he, as he, he, he says, um, the difference between um, a, uh, um, a rolling mill that pr produces striated sheet metal versus a smooth rolling mill. So in the one case you have, um, you have uh, a variation of uh, of the form through time, um, which is uh, imposed on the matter. Uh, and in the other case, you just you have um, the same form, but but it's imposed on the matter uh, through time as as you feed the matter through the form. Um, so in the case of the the smooth rolling mill, it's it's uh, just a case of modeling because it doesn't uh, the form doesn't vary through time. So I've got a question. Um, I guess it's uh, a little bit more general. I'm thinking about the whole dialectic with the, the with the Aristotelian model, and uh, sort of. I'm, I guess I'm trying to figure out exactly what's at stake, um, and what Simon Don is driving at um, when he's arguing against hylomorphism. And, uh, and the thing I want to do, though, is I also want to say something kind of uh, in fairness to Aristotle, uh, because uh, I guess I, I have a bit of a worry about um, uh, maybe there being a bit of a straw man uh, going on. And so, so the thing that really comes to mind is, you know, Aristotle definitely talks about form and matter. Uh, the point, though, is those are only two of the four causes, right? And the full, like, Aristotelian view of causality involves, in addition uh, to form and matter, also an efficient and a final cause, right? And, um, and my sense is, I mean, I'm not, 
Aristotle expert, but my sense is that the full model can actually accommodate processes. You know, so in addition to having like a mold as the form and like a sort of stuff as the matter, you know, we also have like um, like an agent and also like a purpose. And I think on, on the full sort of Aristotelian account, you can even accommodate something like a milieu, I think, something like an environment. Uh, and so, you know, Heidegger's reading of the four causes, for example, he, you know, he kind of gives a reading like that, sort of a phenomenological reading. And I guess that makes me wonder exactly what's at stake in this, uh, the beef with Aristotle. Uh, like if we actually take like the larger account, uh, it seems to me like some of this processual sort of process oriented stuff that Simondon is talking about in his examples may be accommodated within the larger chylomorphic model. You know, if you bring in something like a final cause and something like an agent or a worker or, you know, and you could probably introduce stages as well, like uh, sort of different sort of stages of structuration with maybe gradations of form. And um, so, but it seems to me that that may not solve the issue. And it seems to me Simondo might go further and say, well, but even the full Aristotle account is not enough. You know, there's, there's still something more basic that he is after. So anyway, that's just kind of my, general i don't know if it can be answered right here and right now but uh it's what i've one of what i'm thinking about um yeah i think i think that's a, a good well there's a couple of good points in there um, um but first i think i would want to um distinguish between uh the doctrine of causality or, or the theory of causality and the theory of individuation um because so in as you as you pointed out, uh, Aristotle has this four uh, four causes model of causation. So there's the the formal, material, um, uh, efficient, and final causes uh, in the the medieval terminology. Um, but um, the the three so the the formal, efficient, and um, and uh, uh, final causes um, they all uh in a sense they, they all sort of point uh towards the formal um in the sense that the the end of a, a process of development is the the form of that uh, of that uh, entity so the the um the uh, uh chestnut that grows into an oak tree um it, it has this it's the form of the oak tree that governs the um the process of development of that uh, of that uh, chestnut into the tree, um, um, and and so the the model of individuation uh, in Aristotle is just the form and matter. Um, uh, it's uh, it's so in in the case of uh, living beings, for example, it's uh, the soul is the form, and uh, the matter is uh, the the um, the body. You know, that's a, a sort of a oversimplified account of it. Um, or oversimplified presentation, um, but the 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 depiction of individuation of uh, of an entity is in just in terms of form and matter. It, it's a, a two um, a two part uh, account or a two element account, um, whereas the um, 
the uh, account of causation is a four element um, account. Um, but I think uh, the, the bigger question of what is at stake in, in the uh, opposition with Aristotle um, is a good one. Um, because, uh, I mean, at one level, it, it's just an intellectual problem. Um, it's, a, it's a question of trying to, um, trying to have uh, adequate concepts to, to grasp um, individuation. Um, but the question is, like, why, why do we care about having um, an adequate concept of individuation? And um, I think maybe the, uh, the, the book on uh, technical objects has a more of a, of a, of a practical answer to why we would want to, why we, we would care about um, having a, a correct, correct concept of individuation, because in that book, um, it has to do with the way that um, the, the individuation of a, a technical object um, uh, sort of governs the way that it's incorporated into culture um, uh, is, is one aspect of um, uh, one more practical aspect of why we would care about uh, individuation. But um, um, it's, a, I think, a, a bigger question that um, is worth sort of keeping in mind as we as we continue reading the book. Wouldn't, wouldn't one of the problems, I mean, I suppose we, we should continue, but the, the first thing that comes to mind is that what we risk by sort of introducing more and more stages and individuals is that you get stuck in this kind of, it's like the old, the, the Zeno's paradox thing that Bergson is obsessed with, of like, you can kind of endlessly introduce further individuals and further kind of like st uh, juxtaposed states to explain other states, but merely juxtaposing them on them on their own doesn't itself explain the movement or the i guess in Simondon's language the phase shifting from one phase to another and i guess i'm not i'm still wrapping my head around this but my initial thought would be that coming from that kind of like bergsonian angle like i said in the chat that the there's something about qualitative multiplicity that can't simply be enumerated by quantitative multiplicities and just kind of adding more and more uh, enumerations to explain how a qualitative multiplicity comes about, and at least from you know that thinker's angle, there's this there's this way in which qualitative multiplicity almost is is the conditioning factor for quantitative multiplicities rather than the reverse. And so I'm just thinking about his early statements in the beginning of the book about transduction and how the point of transduction and and what he's doing, I suppose, is to confer. Uh, I think he says confer being the status of being onto operations which we would normally consider strictly logical because there's something about the movement of knowledge sort of like entering i'm trying to look at my notes here he's, i think he says uh, extracting the resolving structure from the very tensions of the domain which is different from deduction uh, there's like an intuitive way that it has to be approached that can't strictly be done through i guess traditional analogy and i guess he'll explain more about what he means by things like allegmatics and stuff like that but i guess that that's kind of my initial thought of like juxtaposing states in and of itself might not be enough for him at least. Maybe your objection is, is a good one, but I'm thinking for Simondon, I, I think there needs to be more than just uh, more actors in the process or more states because you still have to get from one state to another, which is his, I think one of the problems with the hylomorphic schema. It's like, okay, you can have form, you can have matter, you can have all these things, but there's this kind of miraculating magical moment that isn't really explained when, when the combination happens. And if you, rather than seeing them both as pure and that, you know, they just have pure characteristics that just 
combine into a new thing, but there's kind of latent potentials. And I think at one point, and he says that it's as though the form the form operates on the form taking in the matter. So it's it's not even just form on matter. It's like form on form in a sense. Anyway, I don't. I'm rambling, but that's kind of my initial thoughts. One thing might be worth bringing in uh, just on the Aristotle question uh, or the Aristotle side. Um, so in this issue of the formal and final causes, I, I wonder how that's going to turn out because it seems like when he gets to the metaphysics, um, the, the, the final cause starts to play a role, like the individuation, it seems to me, in Aristotle has to do with final causality in some, in some way. And so, um, so it's, that's making me, you know, so this kind of idea of, uh, you know, there is a kind of perfect, uh, prime mover and the prime mover is, you know, that's being qua being in a sense. And, uh, and all things strive to imitate that. And it seems like, you know, that kind of teleological picture is really kind of, I mean, in my reading at least, is sort of the heart of the Aristotelian view. And it seems like that is what's being, you know, that is very problematic for Simondon. Uh, that, you know, individuation doesn't happen through teleology. It happens through a kind of imminent self-moving process, uh, you know, doesn't have the transcendence of a prime mover or anything like that. And I wonder if philosophically, like on a broader sort of sweep, Maybe that's the, um, you know, almost like a kind of, um, I mean, Simondon is not exactly a mechanistic thinker, but there is something of that, you know, like something of like antecedent causation rather than a, a final causation uh, is, is privilege maybe. Yeah, I think one way of setting out that opposition would be that in, in Aristotle, um, as, as he um, explains the the actual is is first um is prior to the potential um so in in the sense well in a number of senses but in one one sense is that um um the uh um what he calls god or um the um um you know in in a number of uh very obscure texts um it, it's you know what uh, everything um is uh is sort of oriented towards um um the and um that that actuality uh, that pure actuality is prior uh is ontologically prior to um to uh entities like ourselves that um that have uh, potentiality and actuality um in this sort of mixed state um and uh whereas for simondon um the the potential um i think is prior is ontologically prior um so the the pre-individual is in a state of potentiality and it's uh ontologically prior to the the actual uh that uh, results from the process of individuation um but um yeah uh, i think you could i think it would be um an interesting paper to try to set out uh exactly what the opposition between Simondon and, and Aristotle is um, to, uh, to explain it um, in uh, as clear as clearly as possible um, because uh, yeah Simondon doesn't um, doesn't 
sort of refer to specific um, texts of Aristotle here. He just um, uh, sort of takes the, the hylomorphic schema in general. Um, um, so it, you, you would have to do some work to, uh, to apply this in a, or to, to try to see how well it applies to, um, to Aristotle's particular texts. Um, and maybe they would uh, also be useful to look at the, um, the other, the complementary texts to this book uh, on the history of the notion of individuation, uh, sorry, on the history of the notion of the individual, um, because there is more discussion of Aristotle in there um, um, and, uh, and his notion of, of individuation. Uh, yeah, that's in volume two of the, of the translation. Um, would someone like to read the, uh, the last paragraph of this section? I can read that if I'm not talking over somebody else I muted. Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't hear anyone. Um, okay. Hold on, sorry. Switching to voice activity. Uh, so it's in the classical sense of the term, that paragraph? Yes, that's the one. Okay. In the classical sense of the term, individuation cannot have its principle in matter or in form. Neither form nor matter are enough for form taking. The veritable principle of individuation is genesis itself in the course of being carried out, i.e. the system in the course of becoming while energy is actualized. The veritable principle of individuation cannot be sought in what exists before individuation occurs or in what remains after individuation is completed. What is individuating is the energetic system to the extent that it realizes within it this internal resonance of the matter about to take form and a mediation between orders of magnitude. The principle of individuation is the singular manner in which the internal resonance of this matter about to take this form is established. What makes it such that a being is itself different from all others is neither its matter nor its form, but the operation through which its matter has taken a certain has taken form in a certain system of internal resonance. The principle of individuation of the brick is neither the clay nor the mold. Other bricks than this will emerge from this pile of clay and this mold, and they will each have their own hexiety. But the principle of individuation is this operation through which the clay at a given moment in an energetic system that consisted of the smallest details of the mold, as well as the, as well as the smallest pilings of this humid earth, has taken form under a certain pressure, distributed in a certain way, diffused in a certain way and actualized in a certain way. There has been a moment when the energy of the, the energy of the pressure has been transmitted in all directions from each molecule to all the others, from the clay to the walls and from the walls to the clay. The principle of individuation is the operation that realizes an energetic exchange between the form and the matter up to the, up to the point that the ensemble ends in a state of equilibrium. It could be said that the principle of individuation is the allegmatic operation common to matter and form through the actualization of potential energy. This energy is the energy of a system. It can produce effects in all the points of the system equally. Oh, sorry. It can produce effects in all the points of the system equally, is available, and can be communicated. This operation depends on the singularity or singularities of the concrete here and now. It envelops them and amplifies them. 
Um, just uh, before we get into the discussion of this, there's a, a missing sentence in the um, the translation, at least in the PDF version. Uh, maybe it's present in the, the book, but um, uh, where is it? Um, right, so there's the sentence, the principle of individuation is the singular manner in which the internal resonance of this matter about to take this form is established. And then uh, right after that, in the French, it says the principle of individuation is an operation. And then it goes on to say what makes it such a such that a being is itself, etc. Um, so there's a, a missing sentence there. Um, um, but uh, I, I don't think it, it sort of changes the uh, the meaning that much. But uh, it, it's uh, it's helpful to have that uh, explicitly stated that the, the principle of individuation is an operation. Oh, it is there in the printed book. Interesting. Um, so, yeah, it, it, when they did the editing, they uh, they somehow deleted the sentence, I guess. Um, so there are some cases where the uh, the PDF is better, uh, and there are other cases where the printed book is better, um, which is uh, kind of annoying. Yeah, this term allegmatic is uh, is just sort of thrown in, um, um, but um, it's not uh, it's not defined anywhere um, and um, there is uh, um, one of the complementary texts uh, in volume two is is called uh, allegmatics um, um, or the allegmatic or something like that um, and uh, um, I think he mm, I, I don't want to uh, uh, you know set us on the wrong path, but I think allegmatics uh, or the allegmatic is um, basically synonymous with the transductive. Um, uh, so an allegmatic operation is an operation of uh, form taking uh, uh, in a, a potential field. Um, so a, a, a free individual field uh, containing potential energy undergoes this sequential process of, uh, of form taking. Um, and uh, and I think that's what he has in mind when he talks about allegmatic. Um, um, so uh, the principle of individuation is a, a an allegmatic uh, operation uh, common to matter and form. So it's this um, operation uh, that proceeds through time uh, of, of form taking. This footnote seems important. Um, that last sentence that the operation depends on the singularity or singularities of the concrete here and now it envelops them and amplifies them. And then the, the footnote says, these real singularities, which are the occasion of a shared operation, can be called information. Form is a device dispositive for producing them. I'm, I'm not sure I have an answer about that, but it's just uh, earlier in the text when I was rereading, I realized that, I'll try and pull out the quotes, but he refers to the mold as the singularity in the brick case multiple times. And so it's an interesting, uh, and, and then he also distinguishes between I think at one point he says that even in the unmolding process, there can be other kinds of singularities which affect the final unmolding that are like pebbles and rocks and like things like that. But the, the point is there's something recasting the mold as something that is not uh, beyond just the fact that it's a limiting force and all this stuff, but that it's that the, the singularity itself is called information, meaning, you know, in the sense of informing formation that it's it's topological as well as well as what is he i think he says noetic is the word so the the what it does isn't just known in terms of um abstract forces i suppose but in terms of how it is actually 
topologically part of the shaping process of the of the thing in formation. It's all it's all quite a lot, but I just thought that that's it's such a little footnote, but it 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 seems like he's setting something up there. Yeah, I think partly um, what he wants to do with that in that footnote, or or what he's doing with uh, with that footnote is um, um, relativizing this idea of form. Um, um, so that uh, we don't think of um, the form taking operation as this imposition of a pre-existent abstract form onto a, a pre-existent raw matter, but instead we think of the form taking as um, a process uh, or an operation um, um, which which happens through time, and and so the singularity um, that um, that. Uh, is the uh, the occasion, uh, as he puts it, the occasion of this uh, operation um, doesn't need to take the the the, the shape of, of something like a, a form, a, a global form of the whole uh, entity. Um, it can also be um, like in the crystallization example, just the uh, the the germ which um, uh, brings about the crystallization of the whole supersaturated solution. Um, and uh, and in the case of the brick, you can have these uh, uh, parasitic singularities. I think is the term he uses um, uh, of like little, um, um, yeah, like gravel mixed in with the clay or something like that that uh, that causes the brick to to form in a um, a different way, um, and the the little irregularities of the mold and so on, um, so that. Uh, in, we have to look at the information, the um, um, the um, the uh, I guess singularities that bring about the the form uh, taking operation in a certain manner, um, uh, rather than looking at form as a, a sort of global um, uh, um, essence of the entity that that sort of um, is imposed onto the matter. I found some of the other footnotes, and I think maybe again we don't have to do on this, but just to help clarify it for maybe for anyone listening, we found uh, there's a footnote five that Angus and I were just looking at, where he calls the mold the mediating singularity. But then later on, I think actually in this next section, he calls here and now singularities like pebbles irregularities the wear and tear of the mold. So then if you go back to footnote seven, and he says these real singularities, which are the occasion of a shared operation, uh, uh, can be called information. It's it's as though there's a way of looking at, at looking at those features as though they are not uh, I don't know descriptive things that just are part of the final individual, but were themselves all part of the I guess the form taking process. I'll still be teasing this out, but I just thought it would be helpful to define those different things. Okay, um, I think we can go on to the next uh, section uh, or subsection, whatever you want to call it. Um, we probably won't finish the whole thing today, but it, it is fairly short. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll see how far we get and uh, and then we'll continue from there next time. Um, so let me, I'll read the next bit. Let me just scroll down. Okay, so subsection three, limits of the hylomorphic schema. Nevertheless, the technological paradigm cannot be extended in a purely analogical way to the genesis of all beings. The technical operation is completed in a limited time. After actualization, it leaves behind a partially individuated, more or less stable being that inherits its high from this operation of individuation 
that has constituted its genesis in a very short time. At the end of several years or several thousand years, the brick turns back into dust. The individuation is completed in a single stroke. The individuated being is never more perfectly individuated than when it leaves the hands of the craftsman. Thus, there is a certain exteriority of the operation of individuation relative to its result. Conversely, in the living being, the individuation is not produced by a single operation that is limited in time. The living being is itself partially its own principle of individuation. It constitutes its individuation, and instead of merely being a result that progressively degrades, the result of an initial operation of individuation becomes the principle of a further individuation. The individuating operation and the individuated being are not in the same relation within the product of the technical effort. Instead of a becoming after individuation, the becoming of the living being is always a becoming between two individuations. The individuating and the individuated are in a prolonged allegmatic relation in the living being. In the technical object, this allegmatic relation only exists for a moment when the two half chains are connected to one another, i.e. when the matter takes form. In this moment, the individuated and the individuating coincide. When this operation is finished, they become separate. The brick does not belong, sorry, the brick does not bring its mold along with it, and it becomes detached from the worker or the machine that has pressed it. After being initiated, the living being continues individuating itself. It is simultaneously the individuating system and the partial result of individuation. A new regime of internal resonance is established in the living being, the paradigm of which technology does not provide. A resonance through time created by the recurrence of the result going back through the principle, sorry, going back towards the principle and becoming principle in turn. Just like in the technical individuation, an ongoing internal resonance constitutes the organismic unit. But in addition, a resonance of the successive, a temporal allegmatics is superimposed onto this resonance of the simultaneous. The living being's principle of individuation is always an operation just like form taking. But this operation has two dimensions, that of simultaneity and that of succession through ontogenesis maintained by memory and instinct. Um, so here he, um, I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but he, he brings up this um, distinction uh, between physical and vital individuation with respect to um, their temporal structure. Um, so the physical individuation is an individuation that is completed um, in uh, a moment or a short span of time, and then the, in, the resulting individual can only degrade after that. Um, so it, uh, the brick, um, after a certain period of time, just turns back into dust. Um, and um, uh, in the case of the living individual, um, he, uh, he puts it in the, um, um, in the uh, uh, introduction, he says that there, there is um, something like a physical individuation of the, of the vital individual, of the living being, um, but there's also at the same time, there's this uh, second layer of individuation um, or um, this um, uh, um, second uh, sort of temporal structure of individuation. Um, that means that the, the living individual, the living being um, is individuating itself through time rather than uh, being just the result of a, a process of individuation that has already occurred. So I think, uh, I think this is what um, this, these uh, two dimensions that, uh, that he mentions at the end of that paragraph, I think that's what that means. So there's this dimension of simultaneity um, which is the initial individuation. Um, uh, so it, it corresponds to the physical individuation um, uh, of, of a living being. Um, and then there's this successive 
dimension. Um, so this is the individuation that persists, that um, is continuing through time um, in the way that uh, a living being continues to individuate itself. I have uh, two points of um, that I want to make that are also sort of questions. One is earlier in the in the paragraph. Um, I think Simondon says that um, he's he's pretty concrete around the the idea that um, none of the mold the form take the form taking of the mold uh, remains with the brick. However. I'm not sure if that's entirely true because oftentimes there is, in fact, uh, a material, even even a kind of scoring that could remain on the surface of the matter it takes form. And in a more abstract sense that I think may also be in line with Simondon is that there could be a trace that persists that may not necessarily be visible um, from and, and this again gets into a <clears throat> more of a metaphysic uh, but postulating the idea of a trace from the form that persists on the, the matter that takes so a topological trace even though it may not necessarily be visible part of the individuation process, which it seems he may have disagreed with um, when he stated that camp. Uh, ah, uh, uh, yes, the brick does not bring its mold along with it, and it becomes detached from the worker or the machine that has pressed it. Um, so that's one point I wanted to make. And then what's the other one? Oh, yes. And the other one has to do with, I can't quite find the right conceptual term that describes it, but somebody had mentioned recursion. 61 had mentioned that. And, and I'm be, as the visual process ensues with trying to understand what Simondon is laying out, it seems that the recombinance of the individuation at some point does have to discard um, the a certain amount of uh, what came before it. So there's a kind of deletion of a certain amount of past uh, information as it continues to individuate. So there's the, the second point there that, that came to the surface for me and and in conjunction with the first one they're kind of they're they're actually not um there's actually a disjunction between those two points so a, a conflict there because on the one hand you might have a trace topologically on the form and on the other hand in the individuation process of the matter um my question is is he saying or alluding to the fact that there may be 
that amount of um, individuation which discards what came before because uh, he doesn't seem to be necessarily amplifying the idea that there is a trace that goes back to an initial form, that at some point the individuation does introduce a certain amount of creative novelty that doesn't have traces of the past. Um, yeah, so I think in reference to the, the first point, um, I think we need to distinguish. So he says he says that the uh, the individual doesn't, uh, so the, the brick doesn't carry its mold along with it. Um, for example, the individual, the physical individual doesn't um, doesn't bring along its form with it. Um, but that doesn't mean um, that it doesn't bear any um, uh, sort of results of that individuation process. Um, so as he points out in the footnotes there, the, the physical individual, um, um, it's, it, carries the the singularities it manifests the singularities of the here and now that constitute the conditions of the information of its particular molding um, so the particularities of the mold um, that uh, or of the more generally of the form that brought about the physical individuation those particularities are reflected in the the, the individual that persists after that moment of individuation um, but it's the the physical individual that results from the process is independent of that that mold. So the mold can you can go on to use that mold again to form a new individual. It's not tied to the one brick that it forms. Um, so that's what it means to say that um, it uh, it doesn't carry its form doesn't carry its mold with it. So uh, in the case of physical individuation, the the process of form taking results in um, the formation of a, an entity, an individuated being that uh, is uh, independent of the form that brought it about, um, but it can still bear the traces of that uh, form-taking operation um, and the, the singularity of that form. And as I look over some of the comments, I, I'm reminded too of the, the second point I was making does um, remind me of the differences that that uh, may individuate as the repetitions occur. Um, yeah, I would just say that here he's only sort of giving a preview of vital individuation. We're going to see much more detail um, when we get to the chapter on vital individuation. So, um, um, so yeah, I don't, I don't want to um, sort of uh, skip ahead too much, but. Um, um, he, vital individuation is also uh, going to be um, a sort of relative form of individuation because different um, different entities, uh, different living beings have different degrees of individuation. So he's going to talk about, for example, sponges that live in a, a, a colony state um, where many individuals have um, a shared circulatory system uh, or many, many uh, sort of quasi-individuals um, share a circulatory system, and and so they're not um, they're not individuated in the same sense that a, a fish or a bird or a mammal or whatever is. Um, so there there are degrees of individuation um, in the case of uh, of vital individuation, uh, but we'll see that in more detail when we get to it.
Okay, so let's uh, read the next uh, uh, one short paragraph and one medium paragraph, uh, if someone else would like to read. Uh, it can then be asked if the veritable principle of individuation is not better indicated by the living being than by the technical operation. And if the technical operation could be known as individuating without the implicit paradigm of life that exists in us. Since we are the ones who know the technical operation and practice it with our bodily schema, our habits and our memory. This question has a large philosophical scope since it leads us to ask if a true individuation can exist outside life. In order to know it, what should be studied is not the technical, anthropomorphic and consequently zoomorphic operation, but the process of the natural formation of the elementary units that nature presents outside the realm defined as living. Um, shall I go on to the next one? Or... Uh, yeah, let's, let's continue from there, the, the sort of medium-length paragraph. Mm -hmm. Thus, the hylomorphic schema outside technology is insufficient in its commonplace types because it ignores the very center of the technical operation of form-taking and leads in this sense to ignoring the role played by the energetic conditions in form-taking. Furthermore, even if it is re-established and completed as a matter-form energy triad, the hylomorphic schema runs the risk of improperly objectifying a contribution of the living in the technical operation. The intention of the fabricator is what constitutes the system due to which energetic exchange is established between matter and energy in form taking. This system is not part of the individuated object. However, the individuated object is thought by the human being as having an individuality as a fabricated object relative to the fabrication. The hexaity of this brick as a brick is not an absolute hexaity and is not the hexaity of this pre-existing object because it is a brick. It is the hexaity of the object as a brick. It brings with it a reference to the intention of its usage and through it a reference to the fabricating intention and therefore to the human activity that has constituted the two half chains joined into a system for the operation of form taking. In this sense, the hylomorphic schema is perhaps only seemingly technological. It is the reflection of vital processes in an abstractly known operation that derives its consistency from what is made by a living being for other living beings. This is how the great paradigmatic capacity of the hylomorphic schema is explained. Coming from life, it returns to life and is applied to life but it has a deficiency that stems from the fact that the apprehension of consciousness that made it explicit has grasped it through the improperly simplified case of technical form taking. It grasps types more so than individuals and examples of a model more so than realities. The matter form duality, which grasps merely the extreme terms of what is larger and smaller than the individual, leaves in obscurity the reality, the reality that is of the same order of magnitude as the produced individual and without which the extreme terms would remain separate, i.e. an allagmatic operation that is deployed on the basis of a singularity. Yeah, there are a couple of uh, translation points that I think um, are worth mentioning. Um, let me find the first one again. Um, right, uh, so in the sentence, uh, in the translation, it says the hexaity of the brick as a brick is not an absolute hexaity and is not the hexaity of this pre-existing object because it is a brick. Um, 
I think it would be better to say uh, the the hexity of this brick as brick is not an absolute hexity. Um, it is not the hexity of this object pre-existing the fact that it is a brick or pre-existing to the fact that it is a brick, something like that. Um, um, I, yeah, so it's not it's not because it is a brick. Um, there, there's no because there. Um, I don't know how much that changes the the sort of overall meaning of the passage, but um, I think that's a better translation. Um, and then the second one is uh, later in in the paragraph where he uses the phrase "the apprehension of consciousness." Um, where he says, "This is how the great paradigmatic capacity of the hylomorphic schema is explained. Coming from life, it returns to life and is applied to life, but it has a deficiency that stems from the fact that the apprehension of consciousness that made it explicit." has grasped it through the improperly simplified case of technical form taking. Um, so apprehension of consciousness there, I would I would just say um, the becoming aware or the uh, uh, becoming conscious of something. Um, I think that's a, a better translation in that case as well. Quick question about the statement in the last, the last statement in the first paragraph that ruins read. Um, starts out with a question, has a large philosophical scope, and goes into, at the end there, he says, uh, but the process of the natural formation of the element units that nature presents outside the realm defined as living. Um, oh, let me read the, the, well, yeah, that last statement that he makes there, uh, what do you think he is referring to as the natural formations? Um, I know that might beg the question because he may have gone into it in the next paragraph, uh, but I think subtly he may be referring to uh, the social factors that go that he's referring to as as natural formations or formation processes. But do you think that, um, or yeah, can you can you elaborate a little bit on what he may have meant by the natural formations? I think it's what we're going to see in the next, uh, uh, I think it's the next chapter um, on, um, um, yeah, so sorry, there's another section, but then the next chapter uh, on um, subatomic particles, basically, uh, or on, on the uh, physical realm, um, not relative to um, um, the form-taking operation and, and this technical schema. Um, but um, understood uh, in itself, uh, looking at so looking at the physical realm um, separate from the living being. Uh, so he's going to um, he's going to uh, analyze what individuation um, what individuation means in the case of subatomic particles. Um, um, so yeah, we'll, we'll get to that as we uh, as we get to the next chapter. Shall we keep reading in the interest of time? Um, yeah, uh, I don't really have much to say on on that uh, on that paragraph. I think it, that paragraph is pretty um, clear. Um, so yeah, we can go on to the next. Um, if someone else wants to read the next paragraph. Um, <clears throat> nevertheless, it is not enough to critique the hylomorphic schema and to reproduce a more exact relation in the unfolding of technical form taking in order to discover the veritable principle of individuation. It is also not enough to suppose the knowledge gained from the technical operation. Uh, primarily biological paradigm, 
even if the matter formulation and technical form taking is easily, adequately, or inadequately known due to the fact that we are living beings, a reference to the technical domain still remains necessary for us to clarify, specify, and objectify this implicit notion that the subject brings with him. If an experience of the vital is the condition for a representation of the technical, the representation of the technical in turn becomes one of the conditions for the knowledge of the vital. Thus, we are sent back from one order to the other, such that the hylomorphic schema seems to owe its own universality mainly to the fact that it's, it establishes a certain reciprocity between the vital domain and the technical domain. This schema is also not the only example of a similar correlation. Automatism in its various forms has been used with more or less success in order to penetrate the functions of the living being by means of representations that originate with technology from Descartes to contemporary cybernetics. Nevertheless, an important difficulty emerges in the utilization of the hylomorphic schema. It does not indicate what is the principle of individuation of the living being, precisely because it grants to the two terms an existence prior to the relation that joins them, or at the very least because it cannot allow us to think this relation clearly. It can only represent the mixture or the piecemeal combination. The manner in which the form informs the matter is not sufficiently, sufficiently specified by the hylomorphic schema. To, to utilize the hylomorphic schema is to suppose that the principle of individuation is in the form or even in the matter, but not in the relation of the two. The dualism of substances, soul and body, is rooted in the hylomorphic schema, and we should consider whether this dualism has indeed originated with the technical sphere. Right, so there's this um, reciprocity of the uh, vital and the technical, um, um, so that it's only because we have this vital um, individuation that we can apply the technical um, schema to uh, to other spheres. Um, but then the vital itself is something that can only be known through this technical schema. So that there's a, a sort of back and forth movement. Um, uh, and and he points out that this is characteristic not just of the hylomorphic schema, but um, of other schemas as well, like automatism, um, which um, is a, a technical notion that um, is applied to the um, to the um, the living being, uh, and then so it's only because we are living beings that we can use this notion of automatism um, to to think about living beings. But then we can only understand. Uh, the living being by applying this notion of automatism uh, as well. So in each case, there's this back and forth between um, uh, this technical schema or the schema drawn from the technical sphere and the um, the living uh, the living being or the the individuation vital individuation um, that um, um, they, they, each one is necessary to the other, or each one presupposes the other. I have an opinion on this rather than any uh, deep thought, but I think the first uh, form uh, of reading is more interesting than automatism. Uh, what I mean is basing thought on living. Uh, it seems to me a more promising direction uh, because uh, intellectualism of the kind, whether it's informational, uh, cybernetician, transhumanist, and whatever, it seems to be, uh, it seems to have a greater likelihood of becoming something like a, uh, what's it, doxa today. And 
So I guess uh, returning things to biology, returning abstract functions to biology is more promising. And he shares this with Kangian and his one of the great works in English, uh, collecting his writings is called Knowledge of Life. And that starts exactly with this kind of opening in which uh, knowledge of life is conditioned on life. And here it goes for the Simondon's understanding for of allomorphic schema. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. Um, I, I'm not very familiar with Kankiyam, um, but um, yeah, I think the for Simon Don, he always wants to understand cybernetics or or like a, a mechanistic approach to life um, as um, um, as sort of relativized to um, uh, the living being. Um, or, or maybe a better way of putting it would be that it's it's a it's a only ever a partial knowledge of the living being, um, so that uh, you can you can give a mechanistic account of uh, various vital functions, but the uh, there's um, something missing um, from the the sort of the bigger picture is missing. Um, and uh, that's precisely vital individuation is is what is missing from that picture, um, and so um, um, yeah. So there's this uh, back and forth between what the vital and the um, and the technical in terms of our knowledge, um, but it's the the vital is ultimately what's more fundamental than the, the technical. Can I ask then, in that sense, and this might have been answered in another text, does does Simonin think of, does he believe there is any prior uh, state which would have um, preceded like the existence of that technicity, or is that kind of a fallacy for him? Like if I'm just thinking about you know living the evolution of living beings and humanity and tools and whatnot, like is it is it crude to associate that technical schema simply with tools, or, or would he would there have been a point? In his, I don't know, cosmology or whatever you want to call it, that the vital schema would have sort of come first, or is that what you're already saying? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, there, so there's, like, I guess, two different notions of priority. Uh, so, in the one, the one notion or the one sense of priority is that the vital is ontologically prior to the technical, so it's more fundamental, um, and uh, we can we can understand the vital. Um, um, or, or we can only understand the technical in terms of the vital. Um, so that, that would be the one notion. But um, the second one would be a, a chronological priority. Um, and there does seem to be some sense in which the vital is chronologically prior to the technical for Simon Don, um, because in um, the technical objects book, um, in the third part of the book, he gives uh, this genetic anthropology. So this um, account of the different modes of existence of, uh, of a human being or, or being in the world of a, of a human being. Um, and the first one is uh, what he calls this primitive magical unity, uh, which pre precedes um, uh, technical, uh, the technical mode of existence. So the, this primitive magical unity is, um, uh, um, I think, something we can understand in terms of uh, a vital um, uh, uh, or the level of the vital um, prior to the technical. Um, so the this um, 
uh, it, well, not to get into too much detail about the the philosophical anthropology presented in that book, but um, the magical, uh, the primitive magical unity is uh, structured by key points and in space and time uh, that form a, a network structure. Um, and um, uh, it's, um, so it's in relation to these key points in space and time that uh, that the magical mode of existence is uh, is constituted, um, which seems to me to fit better with the uh, or, or to correspond with the vital um, the level of the vital um, as prior to technical individuation, right? And um, so the vital individuation <clears throat> vital individuation always um, uh, exceeds any um, uh, sort of mechanistic knowledge, so we can we can have um, knowledge of various processes that are um, part of what it is to be a living being, um, uh, whether it's you know DNA replication or or whatever. You can have a mechanistic account of those processes, but the um, the individuation of a living being. Uh, is is not something that you can account for in those mechanistic terms for Simon Don. Um, so there there's always um, there's always something that uh, uh, exceeds any mechanical or mechanistic um, approach. Yeah, let's um, let's see if we can finish the section. Uh, we just have one long paragraph and then one short one, um, and so we have a, a couple minutes left. Um, so um, Let's see, I guess I'll read. Um, if I started, I'll finish it off. Um, where, sorry, where are we? Yes. In order to delve deeper into this examination, we need to consider all the conditions that surround a notional awareness. If there were nothing but the living individual being and the technical operation, then the hylomorphic schema perhaps could not be constituted. In fact, it indeed seems that the middle term between the living domain and the technical domain at the origin of the hylomorphic schema was social life. What the hylomorphic schema primarily reflects is a socialized representation of labor and an equally socialized representation of the individual living being. The coincidence between these two representations is the mutual foundation of the extension of the schema from one domain to the other and the guarantee of its validity in a determined culture. The technical operation that imposes a form on a passive and undetermined matter isn't just an operation considered abstractly by the spectator who sees what enters the workshop and what leaves it without knowing the elaboration properly speaking. This is essentially the operation controlled by the free man and executed by the slave. The free man chooses the matter, this is, which is undetermined because it suffices to designate it generically by the, the name substance without seeing it, without manipulating it, and without preparing it. The object will be made of wood or iron or clay. The veritable passivity of the matter is its abstract availability behind the given order that other men will execute. The passivity is the passivity of the human mediation that will procure the matter. The form corresponds to what the man who commands has thought by himself and what he must express positively when he gives his orders. The form is therefore of the order of the expressible. It is prominently active because it is what is imposed on those who manipulate the matter. It is the very content of the order, that through which he governs. The active characteristic of the form and the passive characteristic of the matter corresponds to the conditions of the transmission of the order, which supposes social hierarchy. It is in the content of the order that the indication of the matter is an indetermination, whereas the form is determination, i.e. expressible and logical. 
It is also through social conditioning that the social that the soul is opposed to the body. It is not through the body that the individual is a citizen, participates in collective judgments and shared beliefs, and lives on in the memory of his fellow citizens. The soul is distinguished from the body just as the citizen is distinguished from the living human being. The distinction between matter and form, between the soul and the body, reflects a city that contains citizens in opposition to slaves. It should indeed be noted, however, that the two schemas, the technological and the civic, if they coincide with one another in their distinction of two terms, do not assign the same role in the two pairs. The soul is not pure activity, full determination, while the body would be passivity and indetermination. The citizen is individuated as a body, but he is, not, he is also individuated as a soul. The vicissitudes of the hylomorphic schema originate from the fact that it is neither directly technological nor directly vital. It stems from the technological operation and from the vital reality mediated by the social, i.e. by the already given conditions in inter-individual communication of an effective perception of in with the order of fabrication of the case in point. This communication between two social realities, this operation of reception, which is the condition of the technical operation, obscures in the technical operation what allows the two extremes, form and matter, to enter into interactive communication. Information, the singularity of the here and now of the operation, a pure event in the dimension of the individual about to appear. Okay, this is very uh, profound and thought-provoking for sure as he takes flight into uh, seeing the, the social transduction, the social as the middle term, um, and uh, sort of also point to a certain historical aspects of that. But I have one problem with his uh, <clears throat> his explication around the body and the soul. Um, I feel that uh, he's very adamant about um, you know the citizen the citizen as the body, which he he sort of ties in at the very end there of that paragraph. Um, because he had me thinking, like, well, that's not actually the case now. In fact, we have um, more prevalence of a of a kind of biopolitical ele element to the social. And I'm in a little bit of disagreement there too, with the with the soul. The conclusion about the soul that the citizen is identified with the soul, because in fact, um, that may have been his hope or his determination at the time, but it seems that, in fact, uh, uh, there is a conflict there in our present day where I would argue that the citizen is not actually identified so much with the soul and that um, there's still a, some sort of impasse, whether it's hylomorphic or some other simulation um, which has caused... Uh, the citizen not to be identified with the soul as much as the body and the biopolitical. The, the dual substance of soul and body also seems to be associated in this passage, interestingly, with um, a duality between uh, language expression and uh, actions carried out in uh, directed by that action, the, by those expressions. So the status of language in Simondon is very interesting in relation to techniques and in relation to individuation. Uh, yeah, sorry, I, I uh, lost, I uh, 
lost the connection for a little bit, so I, I missed some of that. But um, I just caught the end. Um, um, yeah, the the status of language. Um, I think we we discussed this when we were reading the um, the um, uh, technical objects book. That in that whole um, philosophical anthropology, he never um, gives an account of where language is supposed to fit in, um, and uh, and so that's uh, an interesting problem. Uh, where what status language is supposed to have in in his uh, general system. Um, but I see that uh, a couple of people have had to go. Um, but and uh, yeah, I need to get something to eat as well. Um, so.